Today is another one of our special episodes with Dr. Kelly Victory, and we are joined by Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, of course, Dr. McCullough has been in the eye of the hurricane for uh, having the temerity to try to step up and take care of COVID patients. Uh, before we knew exactly what this was and how to best approach it, I always lived in an era when physicians were encouraged to improvise and do the best they could for their patients. This pandemic was sort of a different experience and quite shocking. Of course, Dr. Victory, who's with me here every Wednesday, is a board-certified trauma and emergency room specialist, 15 years of clinical experience. Um, she's also has, a, I believe, a master's of public health. And Dr. McCullough, I believe, also has some epidemiological training. He has a new book called The Courage to Face COVID-19. He also has a long academic career behind him. Uh, he's one of the more published cardiologists there are. So we'll get into this. There's a lot to talk about. Um, Yes, there's the new book, The Courage to Face COVID-19. Let's get right into it. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. You have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. And we are here again today. Uh, we are discussing issues that have been controversial. Uh, if if we step on any problems, uh, the fact is we will head on over to Rumble. But uh, as we say, the CDC states that COVID-19 vaccines are safe, effective, uh, and reduce the risks of COVID-19. Uh, this program, we always feature medical professionals discussing sometimes controversial topics, Always consult with your personal physician before making any decision about your health. For me, I don't want to be in an environment where someone is just repeating what I know to be true. I could just sit here and lecture you guys. What I would like to do is expand my understanding of things, and particularly as it comes to understanding what we just went through with this pandemic. If we don't do some sort of post-mortem, so to speak, if we don't analyze where we got it right, where we got it wrong, as we always do in medicine, we will live to make these mistakes again, as Winston Churchill's injunction warned us. So let's get right to it. I want to welcome Dr. Peter McCullough. He, of course, has a long academic career, as I said. He has a new book out called The Courage to Face COVID-19. You can read there about exactly how this went down for him. Uh, Dr. McCullough, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. How about me. now, Dr. McCullough? There we are. You betcha. Uh, okay, um, you know, I, this was such an astonishing experience for me. I think we talked about this once before, but the fact that we told patients to go home until their PO2 went into the 80s and offered them no specific follow-up or no opportunities for certain kinds of care. And, you know, I, I accidentally fell into use of steroids because I had a patient with COPD who got an exacerbation. I thought she was just having her usual, you know, bronchitis and pneumonia. And she did really well during during her COVID episode. And so I started using that. And lo and behold, there's some evidence that these things might have been useful. But we had these weird bureaucratic injunctions where physicians froze in place and were not allowed to practice medicine. It was very bizarre. Did you experience the same thing? Uh, it's true. It's the first time we've ever experience this in our careers. I recently testified in the Texas Senate on 
June 27, 2022. And I told the uh, Health and Human Services Committee, there's always been a community standard of care, which is defined by doctors yeah. who find drugs, like your example, they find them useful and they begin to treat a condition. And community standard of care differs in conditions from place to place, but it's always defined by practicing physicians and what they do, not defined by the CDC, NIH, or FDA, not defined by state medical boards. Yeah, it's funny. I was doing a nightly newscast uh, during the sort of the darker hours of COVID. And uh, the the uh, broadcaster there was very, very bright guy, a friend, but he started sort of getting very aggressive with me. Well, what about what the FDA says? I said, I don't care what the FDA says. They don't determine how we practice medicine. They determine what drug companies are allowed to bring to market and they give us guidelines. But what I do for my patients is in the best interest of the patient, period. And if it means I step outside of the FDA guidelines, I'm taking some personal risk, but I'm doing it on behalf of the best interests of the patient. That's true. And, you know, the FDA really doesn't issue guidelines. And, and as, an, as I know you're an internist with a heavy focus on psychiatric disease, you know, you're working with uh, drug uh, combinations where many times you could not, not actually get to a specific guideline or a specific even yep. uh, set of guidances to say, okay, this would be best, but you found that for your patient. Do you have a theory about what happened to us, both the academic, you know, sort of infrastructure and medicines in generally? Is it just that so many of us are now our employees that they wait for their marching orders from a bureaucratic pathway from on high? No, I think it's something very different. Uh, you know, doctors are, you know, it's well known that doctors don't have love affairs with hospital administrators. They're always at odds. Uh, there's always doctors, you know, there's always a, a, a rebel doctor or surgeon who does his own thing. So suddenly to explain that doctors fell into line and they followed exactly what administrators told them, I don't buy it. I think doctors were overcome with fear initially, and fear is a powerful mm. emotion. And they quickly found that the most comforting place was to actually not treat patients, not confront them, not have the courage to face COVID-19, the topic of our book. And so many basically said, listen, you know, I'm protected. My clinic's protected. The NIH says I don't have to do this. Just let people get sick and go to the hospital. And it turns out it was a disastrous course for Americans. Oh, that's an, I not really realized. I, it'd be, do you have data to tell, to tell us that that's how the patient flow went? I do. I'm certainly aware they all ended up in the emergency room or some, some version of an emergency service. It's true. Uh, you know, when I testified in the U.S. Senate on November 19th, 2020, we were basically on the upswing of that giant curve, the, the, the alpha curve, if you will. And that, that, that was really the end of the emergency. Early in January, uh, you know, hospital admissions crested. They went down from there. They never were as high after that time. We never overflowed the hospitals. And the emergency, as stated, was over with January of 2021. But during that period of time, you know, the message was to American from the U.S. Senate was that we can treat COVID. And that doctors should treat COVID. Fortunately, telemedicine services kicked in big ones, 15 local ones, uh, four major national ones. And they took over where practicing doctors were basically leaving patients high and dry. Yeah, I, that's what I was saying. That was just we froze in place. And it was just, oh, I've never seen anything quite like that. Well, uh, it's interesting to me that the the... The CDC and Dr. Fauci have all been in the crosshairs of people's concerns, but a lot of the excesses were really 
not from the CDC, not that I really saw, a lot of the CDC sort of guidelines and things needed to change direction a lot faster than they did. That's the one thing I'm seeing is these bureaucracies cannot pivot. They can't, they can't adjust course once they start doing something. But the real excesses happen in the state and even county level public health systems where they seem to have become deranged. I mean, their, their level of their judgment was just astonishing. The level of incompetence on display. People weren't allowed to go outside. They were pouring sand into uh, skateboarding pits. They were, some, they were welding basketball courts uh, closed. They were telling us we could go to the beach but couldn't lay a towel down because, I mean, what the level of incompetence and those sorts of guidelines are just were on full display. And that wasn't the CDC or Dr. Fauci. That was l local and state-level public health officials. So I guess my question would be, do you agree with that, A? But B, what is happening with public health? Is the training gone sideways <laughs> for, you know, such that this is what they're trained to do during an emergency? Well, the first observation is the same virus, and it's roughly the same threat everywhere. And it was actually from the very beginning. So the fact that one part of the country would have severe draconian lockdowns and the other part of the country would be wide open, that should be the first signal that, wait a minute, is this the same threat that we're facing? And then I think, again, the, the overwhelming uh, effect of fear in the media, you know, if, if you look at fear porn, the dealer of fear porn is the media. And, uh, you know, one of the, mm -hmm. the remarkable things that I remember is when CNN uh, was showing a newsreel early on and there was some fellow, he had his shirt off and he no mask and he was jogging on the Embarcadero in San Francisco and they had, they had a camera on him. And they said, there he is. That's the problem. He's yeah. a super spreader. Yeah. In fact, there was a one yeah. vignette where the guy's on a paddleboard out in the, on the water. The Coast Guard comes up to him and they, they nail him for not having a mask. You know, these types of things yep. where you see absurdity, when you see absurdity, there must be a false narrative behind them. Oh, my God. That, that, that's the stuff that got me. Or then on CNN, remember when Daytona Beach opened up and CNN was on the beach going, oh, these people are going to get, I can't believe what they're doing. We knew then that this didn't spread outdoors. We knew it as a matter of fact at that point. At, when, when CNN did that reporting, there were two cases of outdoor transmission in the world. We knew it didn't transmit that way. And yet science very early on begged no issue. As you say, fear porn was what was being peddled everywhere. And why does the why did the New York Times editorial board have a vote? Why did people that have no business just learn how to articulate certain the names of certain medications or articulate even the notions of the principles of epidemiology? Why were they listened to? Why did they get a vote? Why why wasn't it you know, the practice? You know, early on I was just saying listen to the CDC and Dr. Fauci. That's what we had always done. Now they got a little adulterated along the way, but. That's how we had managed things. We did it with H1N1. We did it with HIV and AIDS. And that's how we managed pandemics. But suddenly, journalists had a, had a vote. That was disgusting. And that was a mess. That's true. Actually, it's interesting that journalism and the media in general, they actually took on a, a countenance where they, in a sense, they felt like they were some arm of public health, maybe the communication arm yeah. of public health. And they, they took that very yeah. uh, seriously. But one of the, the great shortcomings is we didn't see a broad interchange of ideas. You know, as a cardiologist, we, we encounter right. illnesses uh, where we don't know what's going on. And we call what's called Bethesda meetings. We meet in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, the NIH, CDC, FDA, academia, 
industry practicing doctors, and we have an agenda. We go over it. We never had Bethesda meetings on COVID-19. And when I testified in the U.S., I published this later on. I said, listen, we should have had a broad approach. We should have had a team of doctors working on reducing spread of the illness. That's the first pillar. Second pillar is we uh, treat early to prevent hospitalization death. That's the most important thing, stopping these hospitalizations and deaths. Third pillar is do the best we can in the hospital and improve hospital protocols. And the last is vaccination. But we never saw that broad approach. We basically were told lockdown and wait for a vaccine. And and how, just suggesting from a collegial point of view, that we continue to do morbidity, morbidity mortality reports and things the way we've always done them and have you know grand rounds on these issues, whatever it might be, it's like you're saying, the Bethesda meetings, whatever they are, that we go on doing medicine the way we always have, which is really always analyzing our choices rather than silencing everybody, everybody and going by fiat. That was that is one of the oddest things I've seen in the in the certainly in my career when we were trained around the same time, right? And I I've never imagined anything like this. That that to me is the and and why aren't we having a large scale review of the strengths and weaknesses of the approaches that were taken and really analyzing dispassionately what states got it right, what states got it wrong, what what things did work, what things didn't work. Should shouldn't there be a large scale sort of MMR review? Well, sure. I you know I look back on it. This is such a big part of people's lives for the last now going on three years that we should have had monthly reviews. How come not a single yeah. local or national TV station had a review on what somebody should do if they got COVID? You know, we're our third year into it and there's still no care plan. People are handed a test result and said, good luck. And, and you, know, you think we're three years into it, there would be a care plan of step one, this is what we should use. I've been a big proponent of the monoclonal antibodies for high risk individuals. And from the very beginning, it was enormously difficult to access these, find these, no messaging, no 800 numbers. I'll tell you another shortcoming is research. You know, there was no access to research, no 1-800 numbers, no no billboards to get people into COVID research. I mean, as as if if the human mind simply went blank in the middle of a catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, that's a great way of framing it because that's exactly what it looked like to me. And yeah, monoclonal antibodies, I, I had alpha and then I had, I've had it two times, at least twice now, uh, COVID. But the first one was nasty. It was alpha or delta, one of those. And um, monoclonal antibodies absolutely kept me out of the hospital. I, I During the infusion, I felt better. It was amazing. And so I went on Instagram and did an Instagram live every night saying, hey, this is the experience I've had. You need to know about this. And what I got back was, oh, because you're special. I'm sure it cost $1,000. No, it was free. Government bought it all up. It was free and available everywhere. Go, you know, Check with Caremark. Check with your physicians. Get this stuff out. You should have access if you're in any way at risk. And still people are underusing monoclonal antibodies to this minute. So let's uh, let's take a little break. That's Dr. Peter McCullough is with us. You can follow him at petermccullough.com. It's on the screen there. Uh, McCullough spelled M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. I'm sorry, Peter McCullough, M-D. Dot com. You can get him, uh, follow him there. And one more time, the book is The Courage to Face COVID-19. We're going to take a little break and we're going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in. We got a lot to talk about. Here we go. I think we have found the holy grail of skincare. Genucel has absolutely changed, certainly my skincare regimen. I like that vitamin C serum, the under eye creams, skin nourishing primer. Susan loves the eyelash enhancers, uses it on her eyebrows as well. 
GenuCell has everything to make us both feel and look amazing. Best part, the quality of the products. Using pure ingredients like antioxidants, copper peptides, and a proprietary calendula flower base, GenuCell knows how to formulate products to perfection without irritation. For Susan Sheets, that annoying dry area under nose during allergy season, like right here, she tried everything, but no matter what, the skin is flaky and dry. Nothing seemed to help until she started using GenuCell's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer. It soaked right into the skin. She was hooked after one use and now loves all of their products as well. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to GenuCell, I was so happy because... It's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Right now, you can try GenuCell's most popular collection of products and see what I'm talking about for yourself. Go to GenuCell.com and enter code DREW for 10% off. That is G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com, and the code is D-R-E-W. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7 a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, oh, boy. <laughs> he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate of public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And of course, Dr. Kelly Victory comes on in with us. And uh, but my, I was asking Caleb, does that uh, full screen you put up there with the QR code mean we have to go to Rumble? Or are we okay still? No, you're okay. I just put it there just in case I have to cut off the rest of the episode. <laughs> I see. So it's just just in case. All right. Just in case. Well, Kelly, now welcome. We I know you've got stuff. a lot to talk about, Dr. Okay, you have a lot to talk about, with Dr. McCullough as well. I'll let you uh, take it for a minute. I do. Thanks. And it's so great to have you with us, Dr. McCullough. To set the record straight, um, uh, I do not, by the way, have a master's in public health. Uh, I have more than 30 ah, years of okay. experience and a lot of history in public health and was did receive postgraduate training at the Harvard School of Public Health, but I don't have a master's degree. And I know that Dr. McCullough does. So uh, just let the record reflect. Um, uh, Dr. McCullough, when you and I first started um, connected and started communicating a 
along with a growing group of, of practicing and very concerned physicians. I want you to take, take a trip down memory lane, go back two and a half plus years now to when we first connected and we were tre treating patients and people like you who have a long and storied career in academic medicine and as a practicing cardiologist, talk a little bit because I think it's helpful for the people listening to how it was that we started coming up with some of the therapeutics that we were using. You, by the way, I think were the first person I was aware of who was really, really pushing, for example, uh, using inhaled steroids. I, I don't think people understand necessarily that we weren't just pulling things out of thin air. There were reasons based on the symptomatology that you were seeing. So talk a little bit about those early days. You know, it's all in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, the advent of treatment of a brand new novel coronavirus. But in March, uh, you know, I dropped my current, my research program has always been focused on heart and kidney disease. And I dropped that and organized my team. I had three PhDs and a total of six non-PhDs in a fully funded research team, NIH funding and industry funding. And we focused on COVID-19. I received an investigation in a drug application with the FDA to initially study hydroxychloroquine, had a big grant to do so. And then uh, we conducted research in preventing COVID-19 and then working with community doctors showing that drugs in combination work. And there were a series of very important events. In May of 2020, Dr. Pierre Corey testified under oath in the US Senate that corticosteroids work, but in fact, we need to use them at higher doses. Then myself, Harvey Risch and George Reed testified November 19th of 2020, followed by uh, Pierre Corey again, and J.J. Roster, who had done the, um, the large icon study of ivermectin in Florida, they, they testified December 8th of 2020. So we had actually three Senate hearings in 2020, bringing the message to America that we can treat COVID-19 early. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons put together a home treatment guide and helped organize that. That was in October of 2020. So in many ways, we were filling a giant gap where our CDC, NIH, and FDA were not addressing outpatient treatment. That's what Americans wanted. Americans said, listen, we, you know, we can handle this as long as we don't end up in the hospital or die. Our agencies were focusing on inpatient care. And to me, the, what's most astonishing is that even today, the contemporary mortality of someone admitted to the hospital with COVID and truly has COVID respiratory illness is a mortality rate of 10%. It's 30% if they get in the ICU and over 50% if they're on the ventilator. I, I can tell you as a cardiologist, the most lethal heart attack that I face in SD segment elevation of my the mortality rate's only 2%. I'm telling you, right. it's far too late for people to be hospitalized. And you know, it's very interesting. With 10 million US hospitalizations and the NIH guidelines as a base, do you know that no academic medical center has improved upon the NIH guidelines? There's no UCLA protocol or Stanford protocol or Harvard or Mayo. There's no center in the United States that claims to be a center of excellence for treating COVID-19. Can you imagine that? Nobody claims to be any good at treating COVID, yet they all want to say they're great at cardiovascular care or uh, cancer care or others. I think it's astonishing what's happened to the academic mind when it comes to COVID-19. And yes, and can despite I, can the I, fact that- Kelly, can I interrupt real quick? Sure. I, I want to interrupt real sure. quick and just say that I feel like the inhaled corticosteroids got a black eye merely because the press found a if I, as I recall the history at the time, because I, because it sounded like a good treatment to me, but the press pulled up a guy from Texas, who essentially a, a physician who said 
he prayed for an answer and God gave him this as the answer. And they pushed that then as the narrative behind the use of oral corticosteroids, which was obviously a non-scientific message and undermined the possibility of physicians using this. Well, well, let me pick up on that. You know, that physician is Richard Bartlett and his uh, conclusion that inhaled corticosteroids worked is because of direct observation. He was on national TV. He was later yeah, on, yeah. Uh, you know, everything, remember, everything starts with an observation first. Uh, uh, later on, the stoic trial and other high quality randomized trials showed inhaled budesonide, which is one of the stronger corticosteroids, clearly reduced the risks of hospitalizations and outpatients. And then the full complement of drugs we use, even though no was necessary nor sufficient, used in combination, it was powerful. My estimate is our 95% of hospitalizations and deaths going forward now could be avoided with high quality treatment. Uh, uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies are now being phased out because you know our other methods are quite good. But what people need to know is, is that, listen, this should have always been treated. There should never have been a single case that required hospitalization without early treatment. And by the way, there's a paper by Huang and colleagues in JAMA, and it looked at people hospitalized and asked the question, did they get a chance at monoclonal antibodies? Dr. Drew, you'd be interested. They found out that 15% of people hospitalized did get monoclonal antibodies as an outpatient. And you know what? They did great in the hospital. They survived without being on a mechanical ventilator. Sadly, it was those that didn't, were denied monoclonal antibodies or didn't have access. They basically got into a cycle and, and they couldn't be saved in the hospital. Right. So, uh, so okay, despite me, the guys, fact Caleb, that you were- there's a strange sound coming through yes, here. I don't I, know if you I, guys are all I hearing think that's- it. That's on Dr. McCullough's side, I believe. I think it sounds like a Skype or something ah. might be open. Yeah, I need to somehow turn right. that off. Let me. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see what that is. Sorry. Kelly, I'm sorry. Go ahead and uh, continue your no, comment. No, no. So what I was going to say, so despite the fact that you and other practicing physicians were coming up with treatments that made perfect sense to try, certainly oral steroids, inhaled steroids, antihistamines, the cadre of, of well-known antivirals, which included things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and other things, high-dose zinc, high-dose vitamin D, those sorts of things. Despite the fact that you were coming up with a multifaceted treatment approach, there was this therapeutic nihilism, the idea that we cannot treat, there will be no treatment. And they allowed people to, to very quickly uh, slip into extremis and end up in the hospital. And everyone should know by now that no therapeutic does well if you wait until the person is essentially on death's doorstep to implement it. Well, Kelly, you know, I published a paper with Fazio and colleagues from Italy, and we showed the golden window for treatment is the first three days of the illness. And beyond that, we are progressively less successful. And, and you know, I can tell you that, um, you know, having worked with all the drugs, I feel very confident now I could deliver almost anybody through the illness and avoid hospitalization death, including uh, senior citizens, those in the 90s. And I've looked at all the reports of hospitalization and death in published studies, and 201 there was an opportunity to treat earlier at home. I think the hospitalizations, particularly in children, they're simply a product of not receiving ambulatory therapy. Well, perfect, perfect uh, segue point. So let's talk for a minute about uh, the, the vaccines. In order to have an emergency use authorization, which to be clear, all of the available vaccines for COVID are still only available 
under an EUA, an emergency use authorization. In order to have that granted to you, you need three things. First of all, you need to be having an emergency. Second of all, you have to believe the manufacturers of these drugs, or in this case, vaccines, need to submit that they have every reason to believe that it is effective. And thirdly, you have to have, quote, no other available treatments. Those are the three requirements if you read uh, about an emergency use authorization. And I would submit to you, number one, we don't have an emergency at this point uh, in August of 2020. Number two, they know darn well and freely acknowledge all the vaccine manufacturers and the FDA and the CDC acknowledge that the vaccines do not stop people from contracting or transmitting COVID. And then perhaps most importantly, the point you just made, we have a host of medications, successful, inexpensive, readily available medications to treat COVID. How in the world are they maintaining emergency use authorization? Well, I've looked at the, the regulations carefully. You know, it turns out that uh, the vaccines would have an indication to prevent COVID. Treatments, the very first EUA treatment was hydroxychloroquine followed by remdesivir inpatient treatment. And then bamalivimab, remember those three actually had EUAs placed on them before the vaccines. So they were all uh, treatments. The vaccines came in with an indication to prevent COVID. Now the vaccines have only had one indication and that is to prevent the binary occurrence of COVID. The FDA has never granted them the claim that they reduce hospitalization and death or they make the illness milder. So we've had three false claims in the vaccine agenda so far that they stop the infection, they clearly don't. In the spring, the CDC had thousands of patients coming in hospitalized with COVID-19. The CDC May 1st said, we're gonna stop tracking these breakthroughs. It was like a a dam had broken open. The second false claim is that the vaccines reduce transmission. Well, once the papers poured in and vaccinated people were spreading to each other and the viral load was equal in the nose of the vaccinated, unvaccinated, that claim went down. And then the third false claim is that they reduce the risk of hospitalization and death never had a randomized placebo-controlled trial with that as the primary endpoint, despite plenty of opportunity and funding to do so, to ever prove that point. FDA never granted that point. And in my view, we've had really a a cadre of biased and flawed papers trying to make that claim. And now even Deborah Birx, who was on uh, the former White House task force, came out and said, listen, the majority of people sick with COVID are fully vaccinated. So, so what, where do they go from it? But they're still being used under the emergency use authorization. Where's the challenge to that? Well, they, as Dr. Drew started out, they're actually still under, uh, under basically a moniker that they're safe and effective. Well, let's take safety. There's yes. never been a safety review. We should have had a monthly safety review, a day safety monitoring board, clinical event committee. I mean, this should have been taken seriously. We're going to ask every American to take one of these every six months. We should have had safety reviews, safety analyses. We're a year and a half into this. There's been no formal safety analysis. Uh, and, and then in terms of efficacy, uh, you know, w- when the vaccines came out, they were tested against the alpha and the, um, and the wild type variant. The virus has mutated. There, since they've been released, there's 25,000 papers on vaccines. There still hasn't been, Dr. Drew was saying about grand rounds, consensus conferences, other things to assimilate the mass of data, nothing. No, and Dr. Drew and I I, talk uh, about, go ahead. Yeah, I'm traveling in November and we were looking at some of the other countries 
rec needs uh, requirements for booster thaw, uh, shots. And even though I've had COVID twice, I may have to get a booster. And I had a horrible reaction to the vaccine. I have a son that had a terrible reaction to it. And I'm really very, very concerned. And of course, I'm not going to, I'm going to, if I'm going to do it at all, I'm at least going to wait till the Omicron variant is sort of covered by the vaccine. It makes utterly no sense to do it before that. And, uh, or maybe I'll just take Novavax and be done with it, or, or maybe Covaxin will be around by then and it'll be just a more standard, standard sort of platform. But we'll do absolutely nothing. Maybe boost my T cells a little bit, maybe, but against an illness that I've already had and I'm not concerned about. It's wild. And also, too, the fact that you've had an adverse reaction. Remember our principle in medicine, if someone's had a penicillin allergy or if someone's had a contrast dye allergy or previously had problems with vaccines, the last thing we do is give mm -hmm. more of the same vaccine. We never do this. And do you know mm -hmm. people in the military and large employers, they're being told to take the vaccines with no exceptions. Even if they have an anticipated fatal reaction, they're being told, listen, die with this lose your job or get kicked out of the military. I've never seen this. Listen to this. Here's an analogy. We are so concerned about allergies. We've removed peanuts from the planes because one kid could have a peanut allergy. We're not going to have any peanuts on the planes. That's how concerned we are with allergies. But if someone has a significant allergy reaction to a vaccine, nobody cares. Everybody has to take the vaccine. That'd be analogous to making every kid swallow a lump of peanut butter and see how many people die. It, when you, the human mind is not thinking correctly. I can tell you right now. No, I can, can you think of any time in medical history, uh, we all trained about the same time, can you think of any time in your history when we have recommended to give a therapeutic or an intervention to a group of people on whom it has never been tested? Pregnant women, lactating women, people with autoimmune diseases, people with, you know, with, with who had had previous COVID. People who had had previous COVID were specifically eliminated from any of the very limited vaccine trials. So we had no idea. I can't think of another example of that. Yeah, we've never. It's interesting. The yeah, we've never seen new products released where immediately they're used off the uh, inclusion and exclusion criterion of a trial. Pregnant women, women at childbearing potential, can't guarantee contraception, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, and now the same thing's happening with Paxlovid. Remember, Paxlovid was not tested on fully vaccinated individuals. Tested on young That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I'm a Paxlovid fan, but we really only know what we're doing with it essentially above the age of 75. Uh, uh, anybody else, we don't really know what we're doing with it. However, back to our original conversation about improvising, I have used it in young people to great success because uh, it, it, it works, man. Paxlovid works. But I will tell you, I've seen a number of cases of rebound. It rebound is a real thing. It happens not that infrequently, uh, but I'm a fan of the medicine because I know I can rely on it. Yeah, I have a lingering concern. I will tell you what, my daughter had Omicron. Her doctor gave her Paxlovid. I thought, eh, a little young to be getting that, but okay. Uh, and one month later, or was it two months later, Susan? Got Omicron again. So I'm wondering if the one Pax... Month. That Paxlovid impairs the immune response to the virus such that you're prone to reinfection, which is kind of interesting, right? That's not been talked about anywhere. But, but this is what we would find out if we did the proper studies. But, of course, we're not oh, doing that. Of course, and, and Molnupiravir. Go ahead. Well, I just, we just had a chance to, to talk about it. 
So, uh, you know, Paxlovid is uh, Nermentrelvir, which is a novel chymase-like 3 inhibitor plus ritonavir, an older HIV protease inhibitor. In the EPIC HR study, it was actually tested in people age 45, it mean, and unvaccinated. So we had little data actually in the elderly, and we had no data in the fully vaccinated. And the CDC, because of these cases of rebound, which were serious, they put out a health advisory on Paxavoid, essentially saying don't use it in the vaccinated because we'll have rebound. The reason why we have been uh, 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 very open and integrative with the use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin is because they had established safety profiles, and there's never been cases of rebound described with hydroxy or ivermectin-based approaches. So they became the community standard of care. Hydroxy or ivermectin are the base drug in about two dozen government uh, protocols and about 50 or so non-government organized protocols worldwide. So Paxavoid is kind of the new uh, drug on, on, the, on the block, and I've used it as well, but in, I use it according to what was done in the clinical trials and uh, in someone fully vaccinated. I wouldn't go against the CDC advisory. It, it's interesting because uh, Borla, the uh, the CEO of Pfizer, who is uh, reportedly um, four times vaccinated, meaning he received the first two shots of his own uh, vaccine and then got two boosters, uh, now is sick with COVID and is taking Paxlovid uh, or Paxlovoid, as you call it, which I prefer. Um, <laughs> it, he's taking pa he's taking uh, Paxlovid, um, it, which which would lead one to believe that he doesn't have a tremendous amount of faith in his uh, in his four shots of his own vaccine because Paxlovid is supposed to be given to people who you think may have a, a rough go of it and are at particularly high yeah. risk. Um, it, right. It's not intended to be given to people with mild cases. I, I think to Drew's point, I, I think the, the better evidence with regard to immune suppression is really about the immune suppression from the vaccines themselves. Whether or not Paxlovid actually does that or not, I can't say. There's clearly evidence and mounting evidence that the vaccines themselves suppress the the normal immune response. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, there's more and more papers coming in. That Just to finish with uh, Paxlovid, though, is that the cases of rebound, which I think some of them come out of the Boston VA and Harvard system, uh, you know, they clearly were infectious with two big in personal infectious curves. So somehow the, the medicine alone, uh, you know, reduces viral replication, but doesn't allow the body, in a sense, to finish off the virus. And that's the reason why, you know, when I devised the first paper on how to treat COVID-19, I, I said, no way are we going to use a single drug. We don't do that even for a staph infection. Uh, there's no way we're right. going to use a single drug for a fatal infection. So as always, drugs in combination. Interestingly, I checked American Journal of Medicine just recently. My paper is still the most widely read paper in that journal now for over two years. If that gives you any proxy mm. of how interested people are in treating COVID because of such a big problem. So we use drugs in combination. And we saw the mistake, by the way, made, made, it was made with Fauci. It was made with President Biden and now Borla. So here they are off the inclusion exclusion criteria. They're not following a community standard of care. They, in a sense, and, and they become poster childs for if you take four vaccinations and still have a breakthrough, uh, you know, the only consolation prize is maybe having a milder syndrome, but Omicron is mild as it is. So, and that claim, again, yes. this idea of it makes it milder, that claim is not substantiated. We've, we've talked a little bit on I, this I'm, show in the past. Go ahead, Drew. Go ahead, Kelly. I'm sorry. No, no, you. 
I was going to say, say, say we, we've talked a little bit about um, this uh, this new coined term of mass formation psychosis, uh, uh, Matthias Desmond. That's what I want to uh, talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Theory, you know, theory. Uh, I was a psychologist before I was a physician, and, and I, I frankly have really embraced his explanation. Um, I assume you're aware, you're familiar with it. We, there's been a lot of talk about it. And I really don't think there's any other credible explanation for what's going on. It's just sort of the whole world has gone mad. Uh, I agree with you that the fear <laughs> factor is, is a very powerful component of that. Um, but it's more than that. And I've said many times, the most disappointing thing to me of this entire pandemic debacle has frankly been the behavior of my own colleagues, people in our profession. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I've read the book, uh, The uh, Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias Desmond. In fact, I wrote one of the inside cover uh, comments on it that, uh, you know, I do agree this idea that uh, you know, there's been uh, a period of isolation. There has been, uh, uh, you know, things taken away from people that they used to enjoy to do, constant free-floating anxiety. And then, uh, and then the capper is to have, you know, an author authoritarian entity pass down solutions like masking and, and, uh, and lockdowns, vaccines, et cetera, that, that all the ingredients are there. Recently, Desmond has had a challenge from Peter Bregan, the author of Talking Back to Prozac, also the author of COVID-19 and the global predators, we are the prey. And I wrote one of the introductions for that book. What Bregan is saying is, is yes, Desmond has the right ideas, but there's also something bigger than this, that there actually is a complex of stakeholders that are really capitalizing on this, almost like a psyop, almost like a psychological operation. Yeah, and, and I, I, I think somebody, oh, you know, Alex, Alex Berenson said that to us, uh, Kelly, as he left, I, I was like, I don't understand this. And he said, well, there's a lot of cognitive behavioral, a lot of behavioral uh, specialists were deployed to, to manipulate the public. And I thought, hmm, I need to hear more about that. Let me, let me just quickly, I, cause I, I, I remember seeing a study about 65 plus year olds in Paxlovid and I just found it. There is a study, it's just not in a great journal, but there, there is some evidence that elderly vaccinated do benefit from Paxlovid because I knew I was doing that from something I had read. And I can tell you from my clinical experience, it, it's taken some very high risk people and, and worked. I, I mean, it's not, it's, it's just that it's what the point is that needs to be re restated is that we're using it indiscriminately and we're not looking at the actual science. We're, we're really just kind of going to town with it and there really are limitations and we need to do those studies to really figure out what it is we're doing with this medication, which I could not agree with more strongly than that. The other thing that got me about uh, Desmet's construct is he said that the more, uh, that, uh, that as you move on through the mass formation psychosis, People get engaged in rituals that are passed down from on high, you, people using their voice to mandate these rituals. And as the rituals get more bizarre and more detached from objective reality, the more people will cling to the rituals as a way of, social, of showing social solidarity. In other words, if you're socially disconnected, if you're having trouble finding meaning, you have free-floating anxiety, you will cling to that group that addresses the anxiety. That group will begin prescribing rituals. Religion has done this for years. And as you start realizing that 
masks have no value, you start wearing the mask outside as a signal of your solidarity with the group, which is I couldn't understand why people were doing engaged in these behaviors. It made no sense to me. And I thought, oh, there there it is. I think he's on to it. Dr. McCullough, you agree? It's true. I think so. You know, there's a couple more books. One's called The United States of Fear by Mark McDonald. He's you know, in L.A. as a, a psychiatrist, and he has a new book out about how to deal with that. That's going to be released shortly. And he does focus on the mask because of the symbolism of the mask. You know, as many of you know, I'm a frequent contributor on many news channels, including the Ingram angle or Ingram. And they always want me to get juiced up about masks. And and I think they're never satisfied with my answer because my answer is, listen, I'm a doctor. I, I go into the operating room. I go into the cath lab. I wear a mask. If we have a patient who's had an organ transplant, you know, they wear a mask. I, I mean, because, uh, you know, it's not just viruses, which, uh, but also inhaled particles and, and bacteria and fungi and spores, uh, et cetera. If I go to the dentist and there's water blasting all over the place, you know, everyone wears a mask and a shield. So I think masking is appropriate given the context. People working at close range, yeah. uh, have you, but you're right, yeah. getting outside, masking children who feel perfectly well. Uh, so I've always yeah. thought masking, uh, masking could be appropriate for a subset. I just flew uh, just a few hours ago, and there were a few people on the plane wearing a mask. Some looked elderly, frail. Maybe they had medical problems. Perfectly fine. And by the way, even if it's not perfectly fine, they just want to protect themselves because they're, I don't know, they have a wedding in two weeks and they don't want to get a flu, wear a properly fitting N95 mask, no problem. But there's nothing right. about that that screams mandate. Mandate is where the shark got jumped. Well, and the other thing is, I think, although it, it made sense to me that the lay public, people who have no background in science, no background in medicine or biology, um, might believe some of this. The part that I had real issue with, Peter, was our own colleagues. It's, you know, I, I would run into people and say, I sat next to you in virology class. You know that this is a bunch of hooey. You know, the, the construct, for example, of social distancing. Everyone, certainly oh the boy. mainstream media glommed onto it, but people started throwing that around as if that is a well-established construct, you know, six feet apart, uh, when there's not a lick <laughs> of science behind that. I mean, nothing. It doesn't even appear uh, in, in a textbook of epidemiology or public health uh, prior to 2020. The idea of asymptomatic spread, you know, and our own physician colleagues didn't push back on that and say the truth, which is asymptomatic spread. We, we know that that has never been a driver of any respiratory virus. Why would it be now? What was it? What is it about to this day uh, of our own colleagues, people in our profession that have adopted this pseudoscience? Yeah, I think uh, I think people like yourselves, Dr. Drew and Matthias Desmond, Bregan, others, We'll have to solve it. It appears to be some type of psychological phenomenon to, to accept a false narrative uh, blindly with no critical thinking. And, and you're right. It was only symptomatic spreading to asymptomatic. The Chinese published papers early. 85% of spread occurred within the home. There were no major school or hospital outbreaks. It didn't happen. There were nursing home outbreaks and people transmitted it in the home. Then that's where largely where people, you know, didn't have these measures. You know, it turned out the most effective prevention contagion control measure was virucidal nasal washes with dilute hydrogen peroxide or dilute povidone iodine, far and away more, more effective than masks, more effective than any of the other prevention measures. And, and you know, we actually had Republican Congresswoman Macy 
have a, a press release and say, why is our government not teaching Americans how to do oral and nasal hygiene? It works for the common cold, the flu, and COVID-19. And not just uh, povidine or hydrogen peroxide, but also just straight up saline has an effect. And this was well known early in the pandemic. And again, I could never understand why they weren't helping people mitigate risk, manage their illness when it occurred. Isn't that the mandate of public health to help to protect the public <laughs> health? There was no care plan on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I have a podcast. We recently had a comprehensive one on this. And I learned in addition to normal saline, there's also colloidal silver and nitric oxide and, right. and uh, all kinds of things, and, and, and xylitol. But interesting, you know what? Dilute baby shampoo. Dilute baby shampoo. And uh, you know, I can tell you, I was uh, called by the Martin Luther King family to visit them. And in Atlanta, I visited some extended relatives, and I was explaining this. She goes, Dr. McCullough, are you telling me that with the mor morbidity and mortality of the African-American community had, that simply that brown bottle of hydrogen peroxide dilute or something similar could have made a difference? Yep. I said, yes, if we yep. would have had an educational program, yes. Settle yes. And by the way, we can argue about which one is best and which one is problematic, which one's best. We could argue all day about that, but we would have come up with something. It would have come up with something to help people. So my, my question is, Dr. McCullough, I, I keep looking at the behavior of some of the public health officials in some counties and some states. Now, some of them are not clinicians, so they have no idea about a risk-reward decision. Some of them, a lot of them, are pediatricians because they're the ones that really are responsible for vaccine programs, and they really don't have good judgment. When I'm sorry, my, my, I have full respect for my pediatric colleagues, but I would not have good judgment on pediatric cases. They don't have good judgment on adult cases. They're very focused on neurological outcomes and things that are just transient, not, not going anywhere. And they're just panicked about that because if it were a child with that, that would be a big deal. But an adult pushes right through and usually corrects. It's not a big deal. Uh, but the other, I just kept trying to understand what, what is it about their point of view or their training? Do you have any sense of, has public health training gone sideways or is the public health officials just not up, to, not right for this particular pandemic? It's been taken over by a singular priority. If you were to ask somebody, what really is the priority here? I think most of these individuals would say mass vaccination. I, I really do. Yeah. And I think if, if yeah. one adopts that viewpoint, that the sole priority is mass vaccination, anything else could be viewed as something that would uh, promote or lead to vaccine hesitancy. So any in discussion on treatment or nasal washes or anything else, the idea is the goal is a needle in every arm, every six months, forever, in every human being. I really think people believe that. I, I agree with that, but let me say something. There was a, there is a a, a supra, uh, cons, you know, the, a, a concern even above that. You, you people have forgotten how the vaccine rollout went. I couldn't get the vaccine. I wanted the vaccine. I could not get it because the hospital where I worked had an equity criteria that was really bizarre. And the window washers and gardeners were going to get the vaccine before the medical practitioners who were taking care of. So I, m part of what I think I'm seeing is that e equity uberalis, safety uberalis, vaccine uberalis has completely clouded their ability to make good judgments considering those things, taking those things in, but with those three priorities are the only thing you're concerned with, you lose track of a lot of other things that are important as well. I, I would agree with that. I think it was a vaccine first, vaccine only 
strategy. Even the medical literature speaks to that. Uh, you know, our uh, uh, White House task force have never really discussed treatment or contagion control. I mentioned the lack of innovation in the hospitals. You think the Mayo yeah. Clinic, somebody yeah. would want the protocol. You think a hospital would want to be the go-to hospital to treat COVID. Where's the bravado of American medicine in treating the illness? There seems to be only interest in one thing, vaccines. Right. And and I, I have been extraordinarily pro-vaccine in my life. I've been a vaccine zealot or referred to one in the past. But let's talk about these particular vaccines again. Nothing will drive vaccine hesitancy going forward, uh, Dr. McCullough, more than the debacle that we've witnessed with these vaccines and the number of vaccine injuries. Um, when you look at vaccination adverse events, and certainly, you know, as a cardiologist, you are seeing them perhaps perhaps more than anybody else. Uh, you know, where do you see this going in terms of treatment of adverse events? Uh, the, the vaccines getting pulled from the market on the basis of the mounting uh, adverse events and those sorts of things. Well, World Council for Health, which is an international body, on June 11th, 2022, did recommend they pull them off the market uh, for safety reasons from the four big uh, international safety databases, the US CDC bears, UK Yellow Card, the EU UDRA, and the WHO VigiSafe, over 40,000 deaths within a few days of taking the vaccine, fulfills the epidemiologic criteria, the Bradford Hill criteria, that the vaccines almost certainly played a role. And, uh, and then we've just had uh, you know, a, a, a deluge of, of medical literature, over 1,000 papers on vaccine injuries, 200 papers on myocarditis, including fatal cases. The regulatory agencies agree the vaccines cause myocarditis and blood clots and other problems. And, and, and so we have a situation where the vaccines do present uh, real risks. And uh, at the same time, there doesn't appear to be any allowable discussion on these risks. People are, are told to take them. And they'll say, listen, I've, I already have heart failure. I already have heart damage. I, I, I can't, if I sustain heart damage, it could be fatal. And their employer is telling them, sorry, take the vaccines. So it says, you know, there, and, believe it or not, there's I, even heart, heart transplant candidates that are told to take the vaccine so they can't get a, a transplant. I can tell you as a cardiologist, I would never administer a potentially cardiotoxic agent to a cardiac patient. I, if they got COVID, I would treat them. Yeah, we, right. we you so, know, I, and, I'm, of course, I'm a little more on the vaccine side. I definitely am giving it to my elderly patients uh, that it with multiple risk factors and things. Uh, but I would like to see more data. I would like to see it. I'm, I am. I have my eye on the myocarditis and the POTS stuff. I think all the POTS data is all myocarditis, just not properly identified. And and I and I'm very very concerned about it. But I can't tell yet what the risk reward is. I can't. The data is not. I mean, you if you rely on VARES, you could okay. And uh, you know, and there are people running around pulling data all over the place, but I've not seen good data to help me make these decisions. Like, uh, for instance, if, like I said, we're traveling in November, we may all have to take a booster depending on what countries we're going to. If you're 50 or over. Oh, it's just 50 or older? I think. Good. Well, good. Uh, what what vaccine should I take? If Our I do, should I take Novavax? Should I take, I, I had Johnson & Johnson and, and I woke up, we Dr. Don't do it, Dr. McCall, I woke up with a completely spontaneous raccoon's eye, which is the presenting manifestation of transverse sinus thrombosis. And I looked in the mirror, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be the only male with the transverse sinus thrombosis. <laughs> I felt terrible, but it resolved, thank God. Uh, I'm I'm but very worried about the COVID vaccine. COVID since you had the and, vaccine, and, I, and had, I had it twice. Yep, I've so had I don't COVID really want to get the yep. vaccine. Yep. Yeah, so what would I do? Had, what should I take? 
You know, everyone has their own yeah, everybody's risk, had it. Uh, a threshold. Uh, you know, I personally wouldn't take a vaccine to travel. I just wouldn't travel. Um, you know, I, I just wouldn't take that risk. I, I've seen that the myocarditis lead to cardiac death. Obviously, we can't recover from that. Uh, the blood clots, I have them in my practice now. They're not going away in over a year. I mean, it's really a disaster. Mm-hmm. The neurologic damage, I think a lot of that does recover. Um, I, I've seen too much. A recent Zogby survey, representative survey, uh, showed that two-thirds of Americans have taken the vaccine. Of the two-thirds, 15% have a new medical problem due to the vaccines, at least the people right. perceive. Uh, we have the thousand papers in the like medical I do too. Right. We have a thousand pa- papers Susan, in the medical that? doesn't look good. I feel like I we do have- too. I'm I'm getting weird infections and stuff that I've never had in my life. Well, like I was just know, like, this is so weird. It's hard to know. What Dr. Drew is pointing out is our agencies owe America a comprehensive safety review. Right. You know, who's getting these problems? Yeah. What? Yeah. What can we do about it? If a patient has yeah. a blood yeah. disorder. Do they have a higher risk of blood clotting? My intuition says they probably do, but, but without the data, it's impossible to know. And uh, you know, people are you know, there's so much tension out there on these vaccines. Uh, and, and you know, given the, the the reduction in efficacy over time, uh, you know, many would consider that the risk benefit isn't there. You know, an elderly patient, I'd much rather just treat them through Omicron than end up with a vaccine complication. But it's just my well, personal view. Well, as of last week, Thursday of last week, the CDC came out with their new guidelines uh, and they they are no longer differentiating, distinguishing between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. They're applying the same guidelines regardless of vaccination status. And furthermore, if you look at the support document, the summary document for how it is they came to these new guidelines, they freely admit their words, not mine that the two-shot vaccination uh, regimen provides, quote, minimal protection, and that even two boosters provides transient and minimal protection. So it really begs the question, you look at people who are getting kicked out of the military, losing their jobs, can't go to school or whatever else. uh, They now really, I think, have strong legal standing to say, this should never have happened to me now that you acknowledge the vaccine's don't really work. They don't do what you told us they were going to do. Well, so it's, it's I, not do, as though every person gets the vaccine. I, it's not as though every person gets the vaccine has side effects, right? I mean, some people tolerate it just fine and seem to be getting some benefit from it. The, the question is, you know, how do we, we can't do the risk reward analysis properly without the data. That That's my thing. It's like, well, you, I, I'm it, really concerned. I'm very concerned about young people getting it. I'm very concerned about it. And and to be well, fair, you know, we, there was a fog of war early on. There, there was, I get it. I get it. We were doing the best we could. We were feeling our way through, but for God's sakes, let's adjust course. Let's pivot. Let's do the science. Let's, let's do it. Well, if you go back to 1976, when the swine flu vaccine was rolled out, if I recall, that vaccine was pulled from the market after there were 25 associated deaths, 25, it was pulled from the market. Yet, what did Dr. McCullough just say with this one? We have, you know, in the tens of thousands of associated deaths uh, that have been reported from these COVID vaccines, and they are still not only promoting them, they are mandating them. It's one thing to say, this is available, do your own risk-benefit analysis. If you think it's right for you, take it. That's a big leap 
from mandating something and threatening somebody's hey, job. Uh, Kelly, I, I would not be taking it if they. I would not be taking it for travel. That is for sure. I would not be doing it. But right. I, but there may be a country that may. And what's weird about this? Nothing that's weird about this entire situation. It's easy for us to take aim at our public health officials and our CDC and whatnot. But this has been a worldwide mass delusion worldwide that's the uh, i'm surprised by a lot of things but that's one of the most surprising things dr mccullough shaking his head yeah it was simultaneous and worldwide and it started even before the vaccines i did a lot of work internationally and it was clear somehow the human mind just just started to think in, in a very uh, bizarre and off kilter uh, off axis manner and it persisted through there you know there was euthanasia that was done in some countries with the elderly it was denial of treatment worldwide. Uh, when I published my paper in the American Journal of Medicine, I got multiple letters to the editor. They poured in from other countries. And they said, Dr. McCullough, you can't treat COVID. You can't do this. And I said, yes, I can. You know, overcome your fear and join me in trying to help these patients. It was, it was, it was as if they were paralyzed and they didn't want a single doctor to be able to say you could treat COVID because it meant that it would draw them, I think, potentially into personal danger. I think a lot of it, Dr. Gosh, I, re I really, I, I, I really want to understand though how this happened. Is I mean, is there, have we, have we moved? You know, there, there are predominant personality styles that come and go, and you know, we've seen narcissism come on. I wonder if histrionics has creeped in here somehow. The histrionic style, I, I, I never expected that. I, I, narcissism I get, but histrionic disorders worldwide, it's, uh, woo, I, I, I don't know. We've never had any, collected any real data on that now or before, but it, it is it is very mysterious to me. How, as you say, you're saying it exactly correctly, or did has education failed us? Or well, Somebody's got to figure this out because the human mind, as you're saying it, is not operating the way it, it should or used to, it seems. And I want to know what people, and people that, let's say people that would, got mad at us for today's conversation. I, I want to know what they're thinking. I want to know why they're upset. I want to know why it's problematic. I don't, I don't, I, I want to understand it because we're just having a conversation about what we might've done, what ought to do, how to do it better, and why that is problematic to people other than the vaccine uralis position, which I get that might be part of it. But why would the average person have any issues with us just talking about this, Peter? Well, you know, I think the doctors play a key role. And I think we should look back in history. We're looking at we're working on a second book. Now, one of the examples we're looking at is the first great cocaine epidemic. And the first great cocaine epidemic, you know, or in the early 1900s, it was among doctors. And the most widely used drugs were cocaine derivatives. Pfizer, Merck, their first products were cocaine. It was in, in Coca-Cola and Chianti wine. All the research was doctors extolling the virtues of cocaine. You know, it took a few decades before I realized this is a disaster. But the, it, the, the point I'm making is doctors drank the Kool-Aid. You know, 96% of doctors took the vaccines with no critical thinking. They didn't really ask what's in them. How do they work? They just took them. And I have to tell you, doctors drank the Kool-Aid on the vaccine. I think it's a big part of the problem. The cocaine, but you need, need to go no further than the opioid epidemic, which I struggled against mightily. Yeah, there's cocaine tooth drops. But the opioid epidemic was another mass delusion. That was a mass delusion that we perpetrated on the public. Let's be clear. that There was never any good. Yeah, I literally, I would get, I would get uh, papers from the California Medical Association would say, so far we have absolutely no evidence that opioids are useful in, in the control of chronic pain. So let's talk about how to prescribe them and dose them. Like, 
what, what, what? what? That's delusional. In our book, we actually bring up the opioid pandemic and, the, you know, the book that came out in 2021, House of Pain and the movie Dopesick. We bring that up in our book. I think the examples are the great cocaine epidemic. Believe it or not, smoking and tobacco. You know, doctors uh, were fully engaged in smoking. They were on uh, cigarette ads. And in Mukherjee's uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, The Emperor of All Maladies, you know, he describes how doctors would refuse to acknowledge that smoking causes lung cancer. Even the surgeon, the most famous surgeon taking out the lung cancers, he himself was smoking and then he died of lung cancer, still refusing to acknowledge the connection. It was about 40 years from when Sir Austin Bradford Hill uh, had the criteria. said, so listen, smoking is causing lung cancer to the time medicine reconciled. It was about 20 or 25 years with the opioid pandemic and another 25 with with the cocaine, I'm telling you, with the vaccines, it's not going to be quick where the doctors realize that they've drunk the Kool-Aid and, you know, it's not headed in the right direction. Kelly, I'm sorry, well, I've been rolling over you a bit. Well, I know you're trying to say no, something. No, I just was thinking, you know, I, I'm seeing the same thing happening now that um, the fear is somewhat uh, dissipated with regard to COVID. They're trying to amp it up again with monkeypox. Once again, acting as if this is something that everybody should be afraid of. Let's act as if everyone is at equivalent risk rather than identifying the actual risk categories and coaching those individuals on how to best protect themselves. Instead, we have to have equity, equity and risk, which is ridiculous because it doesn't exist. We are not all at equivalent risk from monkeypox, just as we were not all at risk from COVID. We never were. We knew that from the very beginning, yet they're trying to, to ramp up the fear again uh, by suggesting that this is the next new scourge on the on the horizon. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I'm going to have to be my last comment since I have to get on stage here in a minute. Uh, but let me say okay, that. Okay, sorry, you know, Dr. McCullough. I think yeah. America has been overdosed on fear. We've been overdosed <laughs> on fear with COVID-19 and now monkeypox, even polio and what yeah. have you. And we've got to get back to normal. Doctors can handle these illnesses. We've got it. Right. That's exactly right. Let us do our job. Let us do, we let, let's, we don't need the press to help us. Let's just do it. And yes, Bob, <laughs> but let's, let, let's say got your, look at those three faces. Let, Listen, I, they have got it. Look at them. Look at those smiles. Well, Susan's very excited about what we're doing today. But but the, well, let's mention the polio virus. If the fear caused you to not get your kids vaccinated against polio, please do this. This is a really serious illness. Right. This is the one. This is the one I'm scared of. Is the the destroying children's lives. All That's right, just too much. You're not supposed Dr. to spread fear. Doctor right, Doctor McCullough. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. Stay with me. We're going to keep talking, Doctor McCullough. Good luck tonight on your presentation, and we hope we'll stay close to you. We'll get the book and we'll promote it further. I can't wait to read it. God bless you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doctor. Talk to you soon. Thank, you thanks bet. for being here. So, Kelly, that the, I think I think where we ended up was exactly the right spot, right? I mean, that is exactly yes. the the issue, right? Uh, and and it's and I w I woke up this morning thinking about the opioid epidemic, and he brings up the cocaine epidemic. And by the way, if you want to see a great rendition of the, how the cocaine epidemic swept across the early 20th century to physicians, watch the series The Nick. The doctor there, the did you see that that show, uh, Kelly? It was my favorite TV show. No, the Nick. I did not. Oh <laughs> no, I'll oh, it's fantastic. It this this very very bigger than life, you know, bombastic surgeon develops cocaine addiction, and and uh, and interestingly, at okay. the end of the first season. Okay. They, he gets psychotic and everything as usual with cocaine happens. And um, they take him to a place 
that uh, it's a very familiar looking environment for me and the language they're using is very familiar. We understand this is now a brain disorder. We thought it was a weakness, now it's a brain thing. And we have absolute treatments for this. We can take care of this. There's the Nick, there it is. Uh, and don't okay. worry, we'll help okay. you. And and they give, um, what's his name? What is his, the actor's name? Uh, can you read it there, uh, Caleb? Um, Clive Owens. They give Clive Owens an injection, and you see him just go, oh, I feel he stops the mania. He feels so much better. And they pull back. What's the injection? Heroin. And that, and we're still doing that to this day. We're still substituting one for the other. And exactly. that's what we, that's what they did. They used heroin for treating addiction. They used they used they we had insanity going at all fronts. And I think that's a good point is that when we get collective like that and get these sort of ideological sweeps. We heard people, and it's really back to the individual physician using his or her best judgment for the for the patient without being swept into these big movements. Right. Well, I'll also inject uh, the, the concept of cognitive dissonance here, uh, Drew. As I said, oh, as yeah. a psychologist before I was a physician, um, it is very difficult for people to accept uh, once they have bought something, hook, line, and sinker, particularly out of fear, and they've become part of an mm -hmm. entire community, a movement, as you said, yes. that that you know solidarity with wearing my mask and bathing in Purell and social distancing, and they've done that and they've gone out on a limb and said to others that they should do it too, then when faced even with overwhelming evidence that they were wrong, overwhelming evidence that they were duped, perhaps, People do, that's a really tough pill to swallow. And rather than taking that and saying, wow, I can't believe how gullible I was or how wrong I was or how easily manipulated I was, they instead double down, triple down. They just won't yeah. buy it. They have every reason yeah. from Friday why that's a bad study, why that should be debunked, why whatever. And people dig their heels in. Cognitive dissonance is yes. alive and well and living in medicine right now. Oh, oh, oh boy. And and that's why, and let's be super clear, all humans have some degree of cognitive dissonance, some more than sure. others, but we it's, it's a it's a it's a not just a glitch, it's a feature of our cognitive systems. And that's why I'm always seeking to get different points of view. I want to, where my cognitive dissonance kicks in, I, I kind of want to look at it and be aware of it. And, you know, obviously it kicks in a little bit around vaccine. It kicks in a little bit around Paxlovid. And my answer to that is science. Science is, right. is the is the treatment for cognitive dissonance. That's why I keep saying I want the science because I will absolutely drop my dissonance at the point at which the evidence is convincing. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I have some framed uh, 1940s advertisements on the wall of my office with physicians, you know, promoting camels and, you know, filterless cigarettes and talking about, you know, the menthol yep. hitting the T-zone and how they were so awesome. So there's no question, as, as Dr. McCullough points out, that physicians have sometimes been the great promoters of these things. But there's, you know, there's yep. a fine line between playing a practical joke on someone and someone being the butt of a practical joke then someone all of a sudden coming to the conclusion, the overwhelming realization that they were duped, that they did things that were nonsensical, that they participated in something that actually didn't have good science behind it, that they didn't employ critical thinking skills. You know, when I ask some of my own colleagues, physician colleagues, people I trained with, I'll say, 
When have you ever given a therapeutic to somebody on, on whom, you know, a group of people that it hadn't been tested on? When have you ever heard of a vaccine without 24-month, 36-month, 48-month safety data ever in the history of mankind? And they get angry. Uh, they, they get angry. Mm. It isn't a reasonable discussion. We don't end up having a discussion on the science. It instead becomes ad hominem attacks. And it's very much what happened certainly to me and to others uh, when I was kicked off social media platforms. It wasn't about saying, you've misinterpreted this study, Dr. Victory, or you, or you don't understand the epidemiology here. You misinterpreted the data. Instead, they are ad hominem attacks that, you know, you are trying to kill grandma and you should lose your medical license and you're a heretic. Right. Um, that's the first right. sign, really, that something isn't scientific because we have always, Drew, embraced vigorous, robust debate. Think about every, you know, people don't know that every month in medicine, you have, you know, a, a meeting called morbidity and mortality. And you sit behind closed yep. doors with your fellow physicians and you argue it out, you hash it out. Sometimes, you know, really um, emotionally, why did this happen? Why, why didn't you try this with that patient? Did you consider X, Y, and Z? And you really hash it out. All of a sudden, come COVID, yep. we aren't allowed to have these debates. No, I and and at least and it's crazy. And like I was saying earlier, we need that we need a giant consideration, yes. a meeting of some type to look at the strengths and weaknesses of how this has gone and how to avoid this kind of stuff in the future. I remember Z Dog has uh, characterized the two groups as Covidians and Covidiots, and both have <laughs> religious religious fervor and language. The language, I, I forget what you just said about how you were uh, attacked in an ad hominem. Well, you're you're a heretic, you said, and that's right. absolutely again, it's the language of religion. You are dirty, you are sinful, mm -hmm. you're a heretic. Mm -hmm. These these are these are the way these uh, sort of. Uh, these phenomena are played out. They're played out just like a religion. And that, that is not science. That is not science, everybody. That's all I'm saying. Right. Well, uh, listen, I, there, I think I have a couple of questions lined up here, if you don't mind. Do you want to you take a couple? Yeah, I'm good. I'm let's always what, good for yeah, questions. a lot of people. A lot of people are lined up here. So let's, uh, let's see what this is. Uh, Mimi, I think it is. Uh, Mimi, you had a question for us? Uh, your uh, mic is still muted there. Everyone, everyone who comes up that I pull up to the podium, remember to turn on, uh, unmute your mic. It's in the lower left-hand corner. And no speakerphone. No speakerphone, please, as well. Susan, you, did you get a lot out of this conversation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting, right? It's just, yeah. just having a talk, just talking about this. I know. And, and um, you know, you and I, I think, I think the two of us are going to talk to Naomi Wolf soon. And she yes. has a new book out called Bodies of Others. And I, I don't disagree. I disagree with a lot of some of her conclusions late in the book, but to read to read her um, story of evolution of how she was mm -hmm. attacked by her peers was breathtaking. It was just breathtaking, and uh, so we'll get a chance to talk to her about that because when the, when we look back on these things, it, it it's not <laughs> it, it's not maybe as it as it appeared. Uh, so 
Let me, I'm having trouble getting the speakers up here. Hang on a Sorry, second. Sorry, I'm having a delivery. And uh, Dr. McCullough uh, okay, and I just, uh, uh, in the meantime, Dr. McCullough and I uh, share a website uh, along with some of the others he referenced, George Fareed and Paul Alexander and Harvey oh, Reich, early, earlycovidcare.org. And it's really a repository, amongst other things, of scientific articles. If you're looking for something to, to educate yourself or to look for uh, the background, we have, for example, over 200 articles about masks and the spread of respiratory viruses, lots of protocols for the treatment, not only of COVID, uh, but of post-COVID injuries, long COVID uh, vaccines and those sorts of things. So I would recommend that people go there. If you're looking for some of the, the science behind what we, we all are talking about on these shows, uh, you can certainly find it at earlycovidcare.org. I was listening to uh, Lex Friedman. I, I like his podcast. And he, he said something interesting that we all ought to consider. He said, you know, we could use some engineers problem solving in this as well, like the engineering problems, We, you know, about masks, for instance. There's, there's engineering issues there that I've interviewed environmental engineers that have been quite quite mortified about the, the mask issue from an environmental engineering standpoint. Mimi, you got your hand up and I've called you up. You have to mute, you have to unmute your mic in the lower left-hand corner of your phone. And when you do that, you'll be speaking. Uh, and I don't know if maybe is your actual name. That's all I've got. MJ, MTJ. Uh, lower left-hand corner, you'll see a mic with a red line through. There you go. Mimi, what's up? Okay. There you are. What's happening? Um, I just wanted to talk to you about um, certain stuff in medicine. Mm. I was one of those, um, I'm a military brat. And I remember I had the chicken pox back in the 80s. And I remember there was no vaccine. Now, mind you, when I went to school, I remember my parents. I'm a military brat. They gave us all, I think it was four. Never had no vaccine, never had a flu shot. I'm 48 years old. In the meantime, Drew, I had the shingles. Mm. I just got old. My body is like coming down to it. It's like having chicken pox all over again, being older. Mm-hmm. Um, it's real. Yeah, no um, kidding. I it, yeah, I got the shingles vaccine. The vaccine's no fun either. Oh, by I the way, I gotta do that. Yeah, but yeah. I don't want shingles, man. I've seen some catastrophes. No, I, I, I had it. I'm good. good. I never got a vaccine, Drew. Thank you for letting me speak to you. You bet. I can tell you my story. Um, I just want to go back to medicine, and I remember back when I was born. I'm a military brat, and I remember all my cousins. All of us had um, chicken pox. Mm -hmm. It never closed down schools, mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. And here I am. I never took a flu shot, Drew. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 48. Never. I'm like, I can do a cough or whatever. I don't know. I'm, did, you get, did, did you get the polio vaccine? No. Well, well, that sure. that nope. may you become that, that may become an issue for you. That may become an issue of well, this thing gets going. I already had the shingles. Hold on, let me finish. Sh shingles is not polio, my dear. Shingles is not polio. I'm afraid. I didn't say polio. Yeah, I already got over like my body. I had a bump on my arm, um, Drew, and I was sitting. This was back in seven months ago. It was a little bump on my arm. I would say the four was the part of the. It was a little bump. I'm like, damn, I love, um, I'm into self-care. Mm -hmm. I watch my body, pay attention. 
And then all of a sudden, I had a little bump in my arm. And I said, husband, this is weird. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, Drew, my whole body, my torso, and let me see where I had it. On my backside. Right. It, it goes it along. It goes a whole go, bunch of chicken it goes along, it goes along a dermatome. That shingles. And, and the right. shingles outbreak by itself is painful, but it's not as big a I'm deal okay. as, as the, as the post-herpetic neuralgia. But I'm, I've treated it a million times. I'm glad you got through it. People do get through it. Polio is a whole other matter, and it worries me. Meningitis no, B worries polio. me. These things worry me. So what's well, up, the Kelly? Interesting, the interesting thing. Well, I should say the interesting thing about because you're right. You you were of the uh, before the the chickenpox vaccine was available. Interestingly, the chickenpox vaccine, and this is a classic example, was FDA approved in 1996, but it didn't become mandatory in schools until 2003. Okay, for another seven years. So we had seven years worth of data, Drew, before they made that a yeah. mandatory. Oh vaccine. no! Listen, that's uh, the when normal, my kids, that's my kids, the way we normally treat vaccines. I understand. We my kids were recommended to take the chicken. I I agree, and I I was my kids were recommended to get the chicken pox vaccine. I didn't I didn't let them have it. I they got chicken pox, and that was that. I but, did too. But, they didn't have it back when I was growing up. I'm sorry. But measles. No, and, is, and so I haven't seen it wasn't kids fun. die of measles. Having seen Fauci kids die of measles encephalitis, I have a very different. HIV. I have a very different feeling about measles. Well, and now I, I am a strong proponent of children getting vaccinated for chickenpox for the exact reason that Mimi's suggesting, because if, you know, chickenpox by itself is a relatively self-limited and mild uh, disease in most children, but it puts you at a lifelong risk of developing shingles uh, down the road. And mm-hmm. shingle because the, the varicella virus, the, the chickenpox virus, lays dormant in your spinal cord after you recover from it. It never fully goes away and it can rear its ugly head in the form of shingles later on in life. And it can be very, very debilitating, uh, extraordinarily painful. And it can lead to, you know, people end up with chronic uh, neuralgia following it, chronic pain following it sometimes. So it's a, it's a no laughing matter. So I'm a huge right. proponent and of people getting chickenpox vaccinations. My only point was we normally have far more safety data and experience yeah. with a vaccine yeah. before before we start mandating for people to take it. Yeah, that's what I said. I that's why I didn't let my kids get it. We didn't have enough experience with it yet. I've heard I, I heard of some mm-hmm. adverse events coming out of Japan. I was like, nah, it's good enough. We'll get we'll get through this. But mm-hmm. yeah, back to the shingles. Shingles can occur up here in your uh, cranial nerve and it can destroy your eye. And I've seen actually people get such bad, horrible neuralgia that they develop lifelong akathisia, which is a horrible syndrome. Uh, so th- mm-hmm. it can be devastating it can be but it also can be mild like in mimi's case uh this is antoine let's get antoine up here i would probably uh, get that i have to get that damn you need shot to, you Ugh. should yeah you should get it uh, you, don't want, you don't want to get a big rash on your face that know. that scars your face up That's i know one but of the i have to find time when i don't have anything to do on a weekend and do it's, it yeah it's two-parter it's a two, it's a two shots a two shot series yeah yeah it's yeah. not it's, it's not both easy. times kick the crap out of me can i ask uh, antoine you're still muted there Go ahead. Go ahead, Caleb. Yeah. So I obviously I got the Pfizer shots and the booster and I have all sorts of surgeries and health issues and immunosuppressants and all these other issues from just my whole life. So why didn't I have a reaction to it when there's so many other people that are? Do we, do we know any answers of why certain people have it so bad when they get especially mRNA, I guess is what I'm talking about. It, it, 
it's a really. it's a great question, Caleb. And the answer is no. We don't know why yeah. some people. Yeah. I, I brought up in our show with Alex Berenson last week the fact that there is some very very strong evidence that the the majority of the people who had adverse reactions came from a relatively small group of batches of the of the vaccine itself. There's actually a website called How Bad Was My Batch because right. it doesn't seem to be equivalently equally distributed. So I, we don't necessarily understand why some people have a worse reaction than others. We knew early on that people who had had and recovered from COVID seemed to be at higher risk for an adverse event when they got vaccinated subsequent to having COVID. Um, and But there just isn't enough data. And this is what I'm talking about. Normally, these are the sorts of things that get sorted out during the prolonged testing period, right. say six to eight years, where you start to understand who are the folks who are at higher risk for myocarditis, for neurologic complications, for allergic events, those sorts of things? We just don't have well, that data with these vaccines. Well, right. we have some data on young males who get who get the vaccine, that, yes, the two-part series, yeah. as, as recommended. We know that if they spread apart or just take one vaccine, they're much less likely to get myocarditis. And right. those, those the young males, like under 30, particularly under 20 we are i am very concerned about because there is data now what they what the what the prevailing wisdom is is well it's the same as the incidence of myocarditis from covid i don't think so i don't think so no and no so and, I'm very and for example we group. don't so although you're absolutely correct uh drew we knew for we know for example that young males between 13 and 18 are at far higher risk of myocarditis from these vaccines than other people. But what we don't know, again, for lack of safety data, lack of, of testing, is it for young males, for example, who have a BMI of over 18? Is it is there something, right, are there right. other confounding factors? Is it associated also with taking certain medications? Is it people who have an underlying, you know, there, there are lots of things that other than just male between 13 and 18 that I right. would like to sort out. Is it related, for example, yeah. to body mass? Because we know that obesity itself uh, puts people at risk, not only for a worse outcome from COVID, but for all kinds of inflammatory things. So we just need more time. And, and that data, that data is not in yet. Right. I think that's a huge and deal because, is the fact that we don't have the data. They yeah. didn't have time to do the studies yeah. or to look into this. So I like there is no answer well, as to I was so confused because literally it was end of February to March of 2020. I was literally in the hospital, the sickest I've ever been. I had to spend 10 days in there getting surgery and I go into the hospital, never heard a thing about COVID. While I'm there, I'm watching the hospital TV screens as that cruise ship wasn't allowed to let the people off because they didn't know what this respiratory thing was going on. I When I mm -hmm. left the hospital, mm -hmm. that same exact day I left the hospital, they had people set up at the doors taking people's temperature. Like the world had changed in those 10 days, that one period of time. Now you go through that. I had to go back to the hospital six months later, all of this stuff. I was on immunosuppressing medicines. I did not get COVID. Somehow I did not get COVID that entire first year and a half. I didn't get COVID until a year and a half later and I had moved and I had gotten all of the vaccines and everything. And now I'm not, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not, I don't know anything about the risks or benefits of mRNA, but it was so odd to me that I did not catch it at all. Los, Los Angeles epicenter of all this stuff until a year later after I had gotten the vaccine. And I was much healthier then. Yeah. 
Well, it's very interesting because it, to uh, to what Dr. McCullough intimated that that or said full out that even for people who have you know allergies or are predicted to have yeah. a bad outcome, they still were suggesting. Yeah. I was in the yeah. hospital during the early right after the vaccines came out. I. I uh, had a bad orthopedic injury and needed surgery. And you know, Drew, when you when you go in the hospital, if you have an allergy, they put it not only on your wristband, but they emblazon it across mm-hmm. the front of your of, of your chart. So I had these two mm-hmm. big red stickers on my chart that everyone would see allergies. Number one, to tetanus, to tetanus toxoid. I have mm-hmm. a, a life-threatening allergy to that. And number two, my other only other allergy is polyethylene glycol, PEG which is a key ingredient of the vaccines. Yet despite these two things emblazoned on my record, I had no less than 50 people coming into my room and telling me, <laughs> you really need to get these vaccines. You really need to get these vaccines. You know, you're in the hospital. And I'm saying, have you looked at my chart? I have an allergy mm-hmm. to two things, a, another, another type of a vaccine and to one of the key ingredients of these vaccines. And I did not get vaccinated for for many reasons, not the least of which was these allergies. But I found it fascinating that physicians and nurses and everybody, their brother was was desperate for me to take something that I had every reason Mm -hmm. to believe I would have a severe allergic reaction to. Yeah. Uh, Antoine, you are up. If you unmute your mic, we will be able to speak with you. Um, But it does not seem to be happening. All right. We're going to see. The wonders of technology. <laughs> I am the last uh, person who can Candace help. I'm the techno idiot. <laughs> Candace, let's see if we can get you uh, set up here. Go ahead, Candace. My question was, why do you think so many women are miscarrying after they get vaccinated? <laughs> well, I, I, I know that... Uh, Kelly has some strong feelings about this. Let's remember that the majority of pregnancies end in the first trimester by by spontaneous termination. Right. That's a very, very, very common phenomenon. So to try to say there's more going on, you'd have to start to look at the later trimesters, probably, I would say. What do you say, Kelly? Okay, well, well, I would okay. Well, I wouldn't say that that most pregnancies do. About 18% of pregnancies do end by spontaneous miscarriage in the first trimester. So you're right, it is a large number. Many, many women don't even know they're they're pregnant at that point. They just uh, uh, chalk it up to a heavy menstrual period. They don't even know that they were pregnant. But you are quite right, and I believe that the data are overwhelming. We just have a Pfizer study that came out um, that showed that 44% of pregnant women uh, who received the vaccine during the relatively limited testing that they did uh, late in the in the game on pregnant women, 44% of them suffered from spontaneous miscarriage. Um, and, and that is, e- even if you're willing to compare that to the 18% that happen uh, routinely, that's a huge jump. Um, I had concerns from the very beginning about this, primarily because there is a similar protein in the spike protein on the virus to a protein called Syncton-1 that's required required for the formation and implantation and development of the placenta. And I was concerned that if people who were pregnant or trying to get pregnant got vaccinated, they would, as they developed antibodies to that spike protein, they would also be therefore 
creating antibodies to the placenta itself. And they would therefore have an mm. autoimmune attack on their own placentas. Yeah. I think it's a very legitimate yeah. concern and something that needed to be yes. really investigated and requires Agreed. more investigation. Uh, agreed. The theory, I've heard that theory and I, I agree. Let, let me just uh, defend myself on this, uh, where I got the 50% data. Here, here's a, the study I was quoting. fifty-three Over 53,000 women admitted to labor and delivery. 43% reported having one or more first trimester spontaneous abortions. 27% had one, 10% had two, 4%, three, 1.3%, four. 0.05% uh, reported six or 16 spontaneous first. And oftentimes there's genetic issues in the people who have repeated yeah. uh, first trimester Where's that article, problems. Drew? Um, but it, uh, let me see I'll if post I can it up it on the you. website. I think it is, yeah. It, it's a British medical journal, I think. I'll, I'll get it for you. Okay. Uh, anyway, that's that's the stuff I, I was seeing and uh, sort of I've seen that kind of thing come across my desk before that it's very, very, very common. Um, I mostly have used it to make women feel okay when they have these things in their first trimester because they often feel like it's an exceptional experience when in fact these are rather right. commonplace experiences. So it's important for people to know that. Um, let us let us wrap this up. We You've been very kind with your time. Uh, I appreciate you being here as always. We will be back again next week. Let me see who the the uh, object of our affection is we going to be. We, we, we say, hope it's you know? Dr. Malone. Anybody know? We, 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 we hope it's Dr. I've Malone. Malone. I know that I, I don't know if he's confirmed, but that was the invitation was, was to Dr. Malone. There it is. It's uh, Priyanka Wali, then Clifton Duncan, and then Dr. Naomi Wolf. Uh, there will be others. These are just Clifton, the ones that are confirmed. Yes, we're yeah, looking Clifton at the 24th next Wednesday. Yeah, Clifton, I just intended me to talk to. I don't know if he's on a on a Kelly day. So no, he's not. The next no, Wednesday no. is the twenty fourth, okay. and that's and okay. That was, that's the next I week. We put that been, up again. So that's all yes. of next week. I see. I see. Let's put that up again. Okay. okay. There we are. So uh, it's not up there. So there you go. That's what we have coming up. So hopefully it'll be Dr. Malone, uh, and I suspect Dr. Malone will be as engaging, if not more so, than uh, Peter McCullough. So. And Dr. McCullough is really one of my favorites. I just like his even, dispassionate, just <laughs> trying to make sense of all this. And uh, and he went through it. I can't wait to read his book. We got both of us need to read that book because it's going to be very, very interesting. He, I'm sure. He is a warrior. Uh, Kelly, he anything before we wrap warrior. this up? Yes. He no, is just another great conver great conversation. And I'm so grateful for this platform and the ability to actually have these robust discussions that I keep talking about uh, that have been sorely lacking throughout. Oh, the, we haven't uh, the confirmed pandemic. Dr. Malone yet. That's what it is. Okay, right. Dr. And Malone then is a possible. He hasn't been confirmed. We yet. can okay, always uh, squeeze Steve Kirsch in here. Mm. Mm. But we're waiting. We're waiting. <laughs> I, I, uh, um, I, Steve. No, we'll find. Don't worry. I mean, I love Steve. Don't get me wrong. I love We're, Steve, we, and I'm glad you know, he's there, and I'm glad he's doing his thing. It's a week away, so we don't want to like you know rebook somebody else, and then he comes through. So we're waiting. Steve very much. No, wants I'm hoping Doctor Malone. Uh, yeah, me too. Steve very much wants to speak to uh, Heather McDonald. Maybe we can arrange that on our platform and get mm. that conversation together. If that's because he's Heather had a reaction that we think is related to the vaccine, had a pot syndrome essentially, yeah. cracked her Hit skull. Her head. Yeah, and uh, I think that's more common than people realize. I think that's that's a common. Well, Bob thing. Saget may have died from it too. Well, but you know, nobody's yep, going to talk I'm, about that. I know. Yep. 
Kelly's and that's agreeing, agreeing with I that. I wouldn't. Yes? Well, I, I am. Well, I, I am. I think they're the same exact thing. Go well, ahead. there are an awful lot of people. And again, as I as I said, you can never claim that any individual death is related to the vaccine. It's really looking at this like an epidemiologist would, Drew, and saying, why are we seeing a huge uptick in certain things? Whether that certain things is blood yes. clots, su- you know, sudden cardiac dysrhythmias, POTS, whatever it yeah. is, we certainly yeah. no one can deny. I think that we are seeing a disproportionate number of previously young, healthy athletes that are having strange events, um, and and it just it deserves really deep analysis. And the the group whose job it is, I will remind everybody again, to do that deep analysis is the CDC. That's their mandate. Yet not only have they not delved into the data, whether it's data reported by health insurance companies, life insurance companies, the, the military, whatever, not only have they not delved into that data, they have really turned a blind eye to it and, and, uh, sort of, been very dismissive of anyone who's tried to bring that data to the fore. Uh, and I think that, that, that that's really reprehensible. And Dr. Dr. McCullough gave us a little, a little theory as to why they have been so mm-hmm. defensive, that uh, vaccine uberalis and it uh, begs no alternative. And anything right. that goes at that policy is considered undermining and dangerous and problematic, et cetera. All right, uh, Dr. Kelly Victory, uh, follow, uh, put all of Kelly's stuff up there so they can follow her wherever they, there you are, earlycovidcare.org. Is there any social media you want people to follow you yes. on? Yes, well, I'm, I'm on Getter at Kelly Victory MD, yeah. uh, and I'm pretty there active there, having been permanently um, kicked off of Twitter. Uh, I, I didn't fight that, unlike Alex Berenson and some others. I did not fight that because I decided it simply wasn't worth it to be on a platform that is currently at least as um, as much propaganda as they are. Uh, I'm hopeful that if it changes hands, perhaps to whether it's to Elon Musk or to whomever, that it will once again become the great platform that I think it was for open debate. It certainly isn't that now, but I am on Getter at uh, Kelly Victory MD, and as I said, the website, uh, as well as a resource. Kelly, we will see you next week, three o'clock Pacific time. Thank you so much. And we'll see you all then as well. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255.